0: Well, thank you so much. Uh, so if you got your Bibles, uh, we are going to be in John chapter six today. And uh, I'm going to see if this works. Yeah, got it. Okay. So uh, we are going to be uh, discussing uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And yes, I have it in asterisk for a reason. Uh, so uh, in the last chapter, Jesus mentioned that Moses had alluded to him. So at the very end, of John chapter 5 he gives this grand argument of how uh, Jesus is equal with God how he is 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 equal to him he, he gives his witnesses he talks about the Trinity and then he says at the very end that Moses talked about me but you didn't listen to him and if you're not going to listen to Moses how are you going to listen to me and one of the things that he talks about is he alludes to the fact that Moses talked about him all the way back in the Old Testament so in the Old Testament Moses says there is a prophet greater than him that is coming. And this is who this is. This is Jesus. Now, he's not referring to a prophet like we think of, like like Elijah or Isaiah or anybody like that, but but really the Messiah, one who would be like Moses, but so much greater. And so here's the really neat thing about John chapter 6, is John chapter 6 gives us a lot of different... uh, um, uh, comparisons between Jesus and Moses, the things that they did uh, and how they differ, but how the, Jesus did those things better. And one of the big, big things is that like Moses delivered the Israelites from being slaves in Egypt, Jesus frees us from being slaves to sin. We just wrapped up on Wednesday nights our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the things that we looked at was how Jesus' teaching on the Mount was similar to Moses' proclamation of the Ten Commandments. Now, here's where these two differ greatly. Moses was a man. He was imperfect. He made mistakes. He alone could not do the incredible things that he did. It was God who wrote the Ten Commandments. It was God who brought the plagues. It was God who gave the manna and provisions for his people. It was God who parted the Red Sea, and it was God who equipped Moses to do the tasks that he was called to do. Moses didn't do any of these things on his own. Now we looked at Jesus. Jesus is God. Therefore, we see many things coming directly from Jesus. Jesus taught what it meant to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, who healed the masses. Jesus, who turned water into wine. Jesus, who beat death. Jesus, who fed the monstrously large crowd with nothing but a little boy's lunch. And so today... We're going to be diving into John chapter 6. And John 6 is filled with very many familiar stories. If you uh, have not read your Bible a whole lot or you're newer to this, there might be some stories you still uh, remember as you you, uh, look into these things. They're all meant to show how Jesus uh, is a new and greater Moses. These stories have purpose. And so let's read uh, in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 together, starting with this first incredible Miracle of feeding of the five thousand asterisks will be explained in just a little bit. So after Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up, and saw, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Oh, sorry. Philip, <laughs> Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, "Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about five thousand in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them and filled them 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come to the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Will you pray with me this morning lord we are grateful for you and god we are grateful for who you are father we are imperfect god we we show that every day we are imperfect and broken and, and we need you we need wisdom we need discernment and god we need you to walk with us in every season both good and bad god we we know that even moses is as, as awesome as he was and As beloved as he was and as called as he was, he was still imperfect. He was just a man. But God, you are better. And you sent your son, Jesus, to be better, to deliver us not from uh, a a difficult governing authority like the Roman government, not not to deliver us from, from external forces, but God, to deliver us from the sin in our own heart. So God, we pray that as we read these stories as we, as we look at your word. And Father, as we see how you miraculously fed all of these people, God, we pray that you would help us to see that you who do all these things also love us and care for us. And God, I pray that we would trust you in every aspect of our life. So God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you do. to your Son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So let's start with this passage. So uh, starting with the story, this is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Thank you, Victoria. <laughs> um, so th- I, now technically, this is why I put an asterisk on it, because technically it was a lot more than 5,000. So when, when John and the other gospel writers share this, this story, they actually label that number as 5,000 men. They say it was 5,000 men who were in attendance. Now, when you include women and children, you get closer to 15,000. Now, I actually think that number is more because you kind of have a lot of variables, right? You know, there, That's assuming every man who was there was married and every man had at least one kid. Well, at that time, you had multiple children and there may have been some people that were not married and there may have been some women who were there by themselves. I mean, there, there's a lot of variables. So I think that number really ranges more between 15,000 and 20,000. But for the sake of the way the story is labeled, we'll, we'll refer to this as the feeding of the 5,000. But y'all just know it was a lot more than 5,000 who were there, which makes this miracle all the more awesome. And along with that, the story is also found in all four Gospels. So there's a huge significance to this story. So if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this story is in all four of them. There is a huge significance because not only does this show a comparison or not, not only show Jesus's grand power, but it also shows this comparison to how God provided for his people manna in the desert. Just, it, this illustration couldn't is super on the nose, but it's incredible for us to see the way that God provides and the way he does the things that only God can do. So What's happening in this passage is that there's the Passover and there's this large crowd that has gathered to be near Jesus. And Jesus' signs continue to gain popularity and more and more are drawn to him. And remember, they they said they've heard about him healing the sick. And so because people are hearing about what's going on, they, they want to figure out who this Jesus is and what's happening. And so the masses gather around him. now they face a challenge, just like they did with the wedding in Cana. The wedding in Cana, they ran out of wine. But here, they don't have food to feed all these people. The, fast, the Passover feast is at hand, but yet there's not food to feed them. And so what are they going to do? Well, Jesus uh, decides to uh, put one of his disciples to the test. So Jesus already knows what he's going to do. So have you ever been in a situation where you ask someone a rhetorical question, right? Where you have this question of, uh, okay, you know, I, you know, the answer, but you ask him anyways, because you want them to know the answer. Uh, I do that all the time with my kids. And so uh, anytime there's any sort of like uh, rhetorical question, or I say, are you supposed to do that? I know what the question is, but I ask them so they understand it. And so that they, uh, that I understand that they know what's going on. So Jesus is putting one of his disciples to the test and he does so with Philip. And so uh, he asked Philip, what is he, what are they going to do about feeding all these people? And so Philip, thinking uh, in this situation, he gives this proclamation that eight months' worth of an average wage wouldn't be enough to feed everybody. He's thinking of this as a a worldly problem, right? He doesn't think about this as a a God-sized problem. Instead, he tries to logistically figure out what to do on his own. And what he's telling Jesus is that even if somebody gave us all their money, all their salary for eight months, it wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. Philip failed the test. This is the same Philip that had witnessed and saw Jesus do some of the miracles that he has done. And instead of thinking, oh, maybe Jesus can do something about this. Instead, Philip takes that on himself and tries to solve that problem. And he can't, I mean, think about it. There's almost 15 to 20,000 people there. And I don't, I don't think eight months of any of our salaries would be enough to feed all those people to full and give them leftovers is what happens in the story. And so that being the average wage at the time, it wasn't enough. And then Andrew speaks up and he, and he says, well, there's a little boy that has uh, 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 five loaves of barley and two fish. And he's kind of on the right track, right? He, he tells that, hey, there's a little boy here. He has food. But then he fails. Because he said there's not nearly enough of this meal to feed everyone. Now now he's on the right track, gotta give him a little bit of credit there, but Jesus already knew what he was going to do, and, and Andrew failed to see that Jesus already had the solution to this problem. And do you notice that both these men didn't ask Jesus what is it that they should do? You're looking at the man who turned water into wine. You're talking about the man who, who has healed people without even being around them. You've talked about somebody who, who healed somebody on the Sabbath and said it's because he had the authority to do so. And John tells us that in, his, in this, this, uh, this book that he only shares of a few of the signs, that there's so many things that Jesus did, it was more than what could fill a book. But yet they thought of this problem as one they could solve. And they failed to see the Jesus portion of this equation. And you know what? We do the same thing. We have problems in our lives. We go through struggles and difficulties, and, and we don't consider what God can do in those situations. We always think about what can we do? What, what do we have to change? What do we have to shift and adjust? And we fail to see God's sovereignty and his rule over our lives and to ask God what to do in these situations. And so what about this little boy's lunch? So, so Andrew was onto something, but he didn't quite get it. What is significant about this little boy's lunch? Um, I I think it's important to know just how small this meal was, because you may be thinking two fish and five loaves of bread. That's pretty good. That's a lot of fish sandwiches, but it's actually a lot smaller than you think. So barley loaves at this time uh, were really meant for those who who are lower class in the community. And so they were often small it wasn't like buying a loaf of wonder bread from the store when you think of a loaf of bread that's what i think of i think of going to the store and buying a loaf of bread and you've got enough for you know 12 13 sandwiches and if you don't like the very ends of the bread you just throw those away i think those are good that makes a great grilled cheese by the way but the the size of the the barley loaves that were used this time were anywhere between the size of a twinkie and a pita bread so if you know a pita bread bread, a pita bread can probably fit around the circumference of my hand. That's how big these loaves were. And when you think about a lunch for a little boy, that makes a lot more sense than five full loaves of bread and two fish. So five pieces of what are pita bread sized breads and two fish that, that more or less makes a lunch. And so, uh, what you essentially have is enough of a lunch portion for a, a growing boy and maybe for him to have a couple of leftovers, but, you know, I don't know about you, but, but my boys alone, they eat a lot of food. So it's, uh, I can't imagine maybe a boy's a little bit older having a lunch like this. So um, to give this a more perspective, because I think it could be hard to think of like fish and pita bread in a basket. So let me, let me uh, give you a different illustration with that. So catfish hole, for example, uh, catfish hole has a kid's meal that consists of the fixins, which are amazing by the way, uh, fries, and two pieces of chicken or fish. So you're talking about a, a kid's meal, a catfish hole to feed all these people. That is a God-sized problem. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, 15 20,000 people, that's a lot of people. Do you guys know how, bi- how many people that is? That's enough people to fill Bud Walton Arena to the brim. Bud Walton arena fits 18,000 people at its max capacity, but you're not supposed to put max capacity in the stadium, especially because you have workers, you have the players, you have all this other stuff. And so you're looking at a, a small kid's meal from Caffish hole to feed this many people. That's a lot. And that's not a a problem that, um, for example, that Peter or Philip could solve. Now, here's the, here's the other thing about that too. There are some, uh, maybe Bible critics that would, that would say that this wasn't a real miracle. What they did was they got all this money from these people and they went to town and bought all this food, or, you know, they bought all this food in advance and kept it in a cave because they were up on a mountain. And then whenever they saw this problem, Jesus just pulled all that food out from the refrigerator and fed everybody. Well, the problem is, are you going to fit that much food inside of a cave for that many people? And then why wouldn't Scripture tell us that they already had all this food that that Jesus had prepared in advance for? That still would have been miraculous, but not nearly as miraculous as what Jesus actually did. He took a little boy's lunch and fed this many people, not only to the point that they were full, but they had leftovers. That is incredible. Now, let's go back to the text. So Jesus gives thanks for the food and distributes the food to feed everyone. Now, not only did he feed everyone, but he fed them until they were full and they had leftovers, 12 baskets full to be in fact. Now, I don't know if that's a connection to the Old Testament, to the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know. And the scripture does not make that clear. But what we do know is that is significant, is that God and his provisions provided so abundantly that they had not only enough to be full, but they had enough to send home with them afterwards. So I don't think we truly fathom how much food it would take to feed that many people. I saw you, I, told, I showed you the picture of Bode Walton Arena. That's a lot of people. Uh, and in fact, I, I, I worked a couple of uh, times at the at the stadium, not the basketball, but the, the football stadium to feed people. And people went through a lot of pizza. Like it's just, uh, it's, that's what we did. We served pizza. Uh, but I don't think we understand how much food that really is. So Uh, Here's what I did. I did the math for you. Um, Now, uh, some of y'all may know that in in my past, not past life, but in my uh, old secular work, I used to work for the Slim Chickens corporate office, and uh, we called it the support center. We weren't allowed to call it that, but I'm not there anymore, so I'm going to call it the corporate office. But my job was to uh, be over the back of house software. So that's the software that basically helped people in the restaurant know how much food to buy. So anytime you Bought a Slim's meal or you bought a a salad, my formulas would go through and basically take out the percentage and weight and cost from their current inventory and show them this is how much that meal cost, this is how much money you made, and this is how much you need to order on your next batch. So it was a really cool system. So I had to go through and measure all this chicken and do all these other things, create all these formulas, create what ifs. And so what I did was, all right, I'm pulling out my old. Crunch time formulas, and I'm going to do the math on how much food this took to feed all of these many people. So here's what I did I assumed that everybody there ate two pieces of fish each uh, for argument's sake. Let's say they only had three pita bread sized barley loaves each. Now, it says they ate so they were full. I don't know about you, but a little boy's lunch isn't enough to feed me up all the way. I wouldn't need more food than that. But for argument's sake, I'm going to just consider that they packed him a little bit more bread than he could eat. So uh, let's say every person who was there at the lowest amount of people that could be there uh, was two fish each and they each had three barley loaves. So that's 30,000 fish and 45,000 barley loaves. Now let's see how much they weigh. That much fish is 7,937 pounds, assuming that each fish is 4.2 ounces. And then with the barley loaves, it's 2,778 pounds. Now, with the barley loaves, something you got to consider in that is I'm weighing out pita bread. I didn't have a barley loaf. Barley loaves were probably a little bit more. But for argument's sake, to keep this simple, and for the sake of this illustration, I just did pita bread. So this is how much food, in terms of weight, that was distributed amongst all these people that Jesus pulled from a little boy's lunch. Around 11,000 pounds. 11,000 pounds. Do you know how much that is? That's 1.754 of F-150s. If you consider the leftovers, maybe you could put a small bed on that other truck and then drive it away. That's almost two full size trucks that Jesus fed to over 15 to 20,000 people using a little boy's lunch. And that didn't include the leftovers. How incredible is that? That is Jesus. That is the kind of miracles that he performs. We we read the story and we study it, but we, guys, I think we miss it. Just how miraculous this was. No wonder this story is in all four Gospels. Because it's, it's, it's a feat that we can't even wrap our heads around how incredible that was. But Jesus did it. And only God can do something so miraculous. Now, this isn't the first time he's done this. He also did this with manna in the desert. If you remember uh, any any Old Testament history, but at, at one point, the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, uh, out of slavery. And then what happened was they were wandering the desert and they were starving. They were hungry. They didn't know what to do. I mean, a desert's not really a place falling with milk and honey, where you could go put your fishing line out and grab some fish or go hunting. You just couldn't do it. Like you just didn't have the provisions. It was a desert. So God would literally rain manna from the sky, which was bread for them to eat and provided an overabundance on Saturday. So they would have some on Sunday. And it was done in a way that if they took more than they needed for the next day, it'd be rotten. The next day, he was having them trust him every day with their food. And at one point, they got tired of it and begged for quail. And then God gave them so much quail, they got sick. So the reality was, this isn't the first time he's provided for his people. He provided with man in the desert. And this miracle reflects that pretty heavily. Now, this passage ends with people trying to crown him as king. But Jesus withdrew himself, so they wouldn't do that. And you may be thinking, why would he do that? Why would Why would Jesus, who is here to... to to be the Messiah? Why is Jesus who is here to let everyone know who He is so they would trust and believe in Him? Why would He retreat back to the mountain when this group of people, this large mass wants to make Him king? Right then and there they recognize this is the prophet that was said to come, let's make Him king so He could rule over us. Why is it that Jesus withdrew? Because... Jesus was not looking to rule on earth like Caesar or another king. He is the ruler of both heaven and earth. His kingdom was not of this world. Jesus wasn't wasn't there to just create a whole new kingdom to overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus was there so that they would be saved and have eternity in his kingdom. And one day Jesus will come and he will rule both heaven and earth. But at the time, it was not time for him to be a king over a people there physically on earth so he withdrew so what can we learn from this incredible story well i think we have two main takeaways to gain from this uh and if you're taking notes this is uh good things for you to take and to take home with you the first is this you need to invite jesus to a potluck i'm joking that's not that's that's not a that's not a real point so here's my first actual real point the first real point is that god can do a little or god can do a lot with what seems like a little God can do a lot with what seems like a little. And I use that word seems very importantly because to the disciples and to us, that meal looked very small. It was seemingly unimportant. It was seemingly uh, not very useful for their problem, but God used that to do incredible things. And the things sometimes that we think are small or insignificant or important, God sees an entirely different light. So what what does that look like? Where have we seen that maybe even in the history of the church? Well, uh, right now we are talking about Lottie Moon and we're talking about the Christmas offering. So I think actually she is a great example of how God can use something small to do something big and miraculous. So Charlotte Lottie Moon, she committed her life to sharing the gospel with the vastly anti-Christian Chinese population. And she did so while abandoning a life of comfort and luxury. She grew up during during the 1800s, where it wasn't it wasn't normal for self, for for a a woman to serve overseas, especially one who was unmarried. Normally, what would happen is men would be called into the mission field; they would go serve serve short term, they would take their wife and kids with them, and then uh, eventually they would come home. But uh, Charlotte was in a position where not only Was she at this point unmarried, but she was also very highly educated. She had an opportunity to get into higher education that was completely not normal for the time for women. And she could have made a lot of money doing what she was doing. She faced a life of comfort and luxury. She had the American dream in the palm of her hand. But what did she do? She didn't settle. Instead, she put those things away and she committed her life to serving overseas. And she served the people of China for 40 years. And she passed away on the boat ride back to the United States on Christmas Eve. Which is why this time of the year is we take an offering in, in her honor. Now, Lottie's service to the gospel and the Chinese people set the groundwork for the church to grow in a very, very anti-Christian nation. Now, interestingly enough, and I think this is the provision of the Lord in this one, is that she... And Annie Armstrong, Annie Armstrong uh, did a lot for missions in the nor- for, for North America. They were both alive at the same time, and actually Annie Armstrong served as an advocate for Lottie Moon while she was overseas, helping her to do support raising and and to be able to stay overseas longer. So these two women, God raised up in a time that was super uncommon. And these women did incredible things for the sake of missions. And arguably, I don't think the North American Mission Board nor the IMB would be what they are without these two women and their faithfulness and obedience to God. So God can use what are seemingly small to do incredibly big things. Charlotte's obedience and her faith. Was, she wasn't expecting this to change what, how we do missions in the future. She wasn't expecting, this, expecting her to be a trailblazer in the history of the church, but rather she just wanted to be faithful and obedient to what God was calling her to right then and there. So God can use what seems like small acts of obedience to do incredible things for His work and His kingdom and His glory. The next is... I think about the influence of small churches and big churches. So, right, like here in Greenland, Arkansas, we are, we are relatively a smaller church. And, uh, you know, you may think this is uncommon, but, but uh, the majority of churches in the United States are uh, on average around 80 people in attendance, if not less. And you may think to yourself, well, these smaller churches don't have the influence of the bigger churches. And, uh, you know, to an extent, we may not have the same resources as a larger church, sure, we may not have some of the influence of maybe some of the areas that they surround. That might be true. But the reality is God uses the obedience and the health of these small churches to reach those that they are around. I, I, saw, I saw one study done, for example, that, um, that 80% of churches are under that threshold of 80 or under, but their influence is greater than all the, the larger churches and their attendance combined. It's because a lot of these churches, especially churches like ours, are in towns where we have relationships and community. It's harder for a larger church to have those things there. And so some of us may fall under this mindset of, oh, well, because we're a smaller church, we can't make an impact for the kingdom of God. Oh, because, you know, we are we are in an area that's, that doesn't have millions of people in it, then, then we can't have an influence and, and, and really make the gospel known. That is not true. God uses the faithfulness of of every believer and uses the faithfulness of both the large churches and the small churches to do incredibly miraculous things. Like I think of some of the, some of the theologians that, that, that I've, looked, I, I've looked to for reading and wisdom and, and have seen their lives and have seen how they have been influenced mostly by people that are not very well-known, right? They, they weren't, you know, uh, only mentored and discipled by people that are well-known or spoke at conferences or had books written about them but they were discipled by people who were faithful and who loved the Lord. But then I also think of, too, the influence of Jesus' closest followers, right? Like he, Jesus didn't have this massive army to go make the the early church. It It was Jesus and his disciples. Not only was it his 12 that were around him, but his three main disciples that he spent the most time with. And so this small group of men, is what created the entirety of the early, of the early church. And so we think that, that it takes a huge thing in order for God to do something incredible and miraculous, but it doesn't. God can use both big things and small things to do His will and to do wonderful things. So that's the first point. God can do a lot with what seems like a little. The second is this, is that God's provisions are plentiful. God's provisions are plentiful. Time and time again, God cares for his people. He gives them everything that they need. He gave manna to those who needed a meal in the desert when his people were were looking to go to the promised land. God provides for us what what we need each and every day. He gives us the air to breathe. He provides for us, and we have so much anxiety over what are we going to eat, what are we going to wear, where are we going to go in five or six years from now? Where are we going to live? And 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 God shows over and over and over again that that He cares for us. He provides for us what we need. In Matthew chapter six, He talks about we aren't to be anxious for anything, as God provides for the birds of the skies and the flowers in the fields, so He can provide for us, a creation He loves so much more. Now it may not look like what we think of now, right? Because because when we think of the things that we want, the things that we need, it may look different in the way that God provides those things, but. The, the, the promise is that God loves us and he will not abandon us and he will give us everything that we need. And his provisions are good and plentiful. And I even think even beyond just the physical things, God provides for us in terms of his timing and his will. There may be times where God maybe puts us in the position to meet somebody or... Uh, interact with somebody that changes the direction or the the course of our lives, or maybe he shuts the door on something an opportunity that we thought would be really good, but then opens up something else somewhere else. and and he's directing and guiding us in a different way to to do what He is calling us to do. You know I think about the fact that God sees this whole picture of our lives, and we only see a little fragment of it. And our goal is not to understand the big picture in its entirety, but rather to trust him in each and every step. Of the way and with our lives he makes provisions now and he makes provisions for our future and you know what we're called to do we're called not to be anxious for that we're called to trust him today and to and to and to not worry about tomorrow because problem's gonna today's got enough problems of its own and so this wonderful story shows us so much about our god and who he is. And my question for you this morning as we have our time of invitation is, do you trust in the God that provides? Do you trust in the God that can take a little boy's lunch and feed a Bud Walton arena-sized group of people? Do you trust in the God that provided food for his people as they wandered the desert and sought out the promised land? Do you trust the God who does all things and who loves you and who loves me?